Uh, let's bow our heads together. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for your wonderful blessings this past week. Uh, even for the trials that we've had and, and uh, those situations that we've been thrown into, we know that they are for our best good if we give you uh, the authority in our life, which we do today. And we emphasize in our prayer that uh, we love Jesus, we confess our sins, we pray that the Holy Spirit will live in our hearts and change us. I pray, Lord, for those who couldn't be with us today. I pray for those on uh, sick beds, uh, such as my cousin Steve. I pray for our families and our children. I especially pray for our church and our people uh, that we will press together and be making the preparations needed to meet Jesus in peace when He returns. And Lord, please give me the words to speak today. May they be uh, the truth, not opinion. Uh, open our hearts to receive this truth uh, that uh, we may be enlightened and educated uh, to make better choices from this day forward. Thank you so much for Jesus. So much for Jesus. And uh, for the angels that you send to help us, I pray a blessing upon them. And uh, I ask these favors in Jesus' name, because He is worthy. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, uh, in a, this is a series that I've entitled Spiritual Possession. In part one of this series, the last time we were together, uh, we looked at the main powers involved in possession, and we defined some terms so that we would be on the same page as we go along. Uh, we found that the powers involved are powers beyond what humans can relate to. Is Well, they are supernatural powers. Um, the players involved, they're fighting for possession of man of human beings, the battle, you've heard me say this before, the battle is for our mind, and that's exactly true. If they get our minds, and the, these dark forces, they, they gain possession of our mind, their hope is to thus gain possession of the earth, and further this conflict throughout creation. Who are these power players? Well, as John said in Revelations chapter 12 and 18, they are the spirits of devils on one hand, and an angel come down from heaven having great power on the other. Essentially, the two sides in this cosmic conflict of the ages, right? Jesus and his angels, and Satan and his angels. And so, as we say, it's the, it's, it's the Spirit of Christ, and the Spirit of Antichrist is just the one side or the other. Uh, last time we were together, we defined uh, terms, we defined what is meant by the word possession. Uh, Webster's Dictionary, the 1828 edition, defines the word possession as, first, the having, holding, or detention of property in one's power or command, actual season or occupancy, either rightful or wrongful. One man may have the possession of a thing, and another may have the right of possession or property. And... I'll tell you that is such the case um, when we talk about spiritual possession by these dark forces. Now, the second thing that Webster says is to to when we define possession is to take possession, to enter on or to bring within one's power or occupancy. Uh, last time we were together, we looked at uh, uh, that word, that Greek word for. Uh, that's been translated into English as possessed with devils. It's the Greek word 
demonsomie. And it means to be exercised by a demon, to have a demon, to be vexed with or be possessed with a devil or devils. Uh, one thing we noted is that it doesn't infer being harassed by demons, which essentially is, uh, when, I, when I say that, I mean mostly tempted. That, you know, Christians will be harassed by demons. Uh, but it, it means to be physically taken over by, see. And this is manifested in different degrees. Uh, but the bottom line is that you are no longer in control of yourself. You are controlled by demons to some extent, minor or major. And, and, and I'll add here, to clarify, it doesn't mean that you no longer have a will or that you no longer have the freedom to choose. It means that your will is taken captive. Well, let's put it this way. It means that your will has been caged. How's that sound? And when it's caged, it is then beaten down and beaten down and thus so weakened that it uh, essentially cannot but make the wrong choices. And this is where sin leads us to, friends. But the great news is, it is possible <laughs> that Jesus can be seen through the bars of that cage, and you can be set free. He came to set the captives free, did He not? And so, I want to be very clear, um, because some, uh, some think that a demon-possessed person can no longer choose right and wrong because the demon owns their, quote, soul, you know, in essence. And they have become the demon's robot due to a removal of the person's will. And that's not the case. That's, that's a lie from Satan. In fact, the reason that's a lie from Satan, and he, he says that, it's his attempt to destroy any hope for a person, see? To convince them that he's more powerful than Christ and they can never be saved. But we know that's not true. Uh, many examples in the Gospels point out that that's a lie. There's always hope for a captive will. At least until um, the Holy Spirit may be grieved away. Uh, but we can never say to God, friends, never, that the devil made me do it. Because we've made the choice in some way to sin. It falls upon us. Does that sound clear? I hope that sounds clear. Um, the reaction uh, to Christ by the demoniacs there at Gadara, it, that's a great example actually, that shows this about the will. And uh, I hope to get to that before we're through with this series. In fact, I know we will. It may not. I don't think it's going to be today, but, uh, but uh, that, that really shows what I'm saying. Uh, but consider this question as we go on. Just put this in the back of your mind. Consider this question. Are demons naturally... And when I say demons, I'm not just being specific about that because they're called by many names, remember. Demons, evil spirits, devils, uh, an unclean spirit, familiar spirit, etc. Um, are they naturally inclined to come to Christ? I mean, think about that. Is Jesus a magnet... For demons, right? Uh, think of this. What prompted the demoniac to seek Jesus? Okay? 
So let let those questions kind of sink in a bit and, and stew a bit in the back of your mind, and uh, as we go through this, and I think things will kind of uh, they'll kind of clear up uh, for you. Um, right now, I'm just going kind of through a review before we get into part two here. Um, we learned in part one that to cast out means to cast out, drive out, to send out with a notion of violence. And we see in the gospel accounts the violent reaction of the demons when they're cast out of a person, right? Demons, I'll tell you, demons love violence. They love war. Um, they love violence, and they'll put up a fight to keep us in their control. Now, it doesn't mean they'll win the fight, okay? But uh, they put up a fight, and they, and they also will always lead the one possessed, the one that they have control of, to do evil. Their goal is to break God's law in some way and have that person that they're controlling the will of break God's law. That's what it boils down to. I want to share a testimony about this from uh, Manuscript Releases, Volume 6, page 150. It's very interesting. Um, and this is, this is just a, a, a kind of evidence of what I'm saying about they're going to lead you to do evil. This is a testimony. Uh, about a brother, or about a person named Will Smith. She says, Brother Will Smith is a man that was converted last year. He was in the truth years ago, but for some reason gave it up, and the devil took possession of him. How was the devil able to take possession of him? What did he do? He gave up the truth, didn't he? Alright? So that opens somebody up, doesn't it? But what did the devil do? She says, and he became a desperado. That's very interesting, isn't it? His wife kept the Sabbath. Then she says, he's a tall, well-developed, powerfully built man. He went into all sorts of lawlessness, stealing, and tried to kill. But his victim did not come in just when he was prepared to kill him. Is this guy, because he's been possessed by the devil, was he lost? Is he, there no hope for him, as the devil would want you to believe? No. She goes on. She says, Last year at Fresno, under the labors of Elder E.P. Daniels, he was powerfully wrought upon and he repented with another backslider who had gone with him in all his wickedness. Then commenced the work of confession and restitution. And, and I encourage you, you know, uh, you can go ahead and read about what this guy did after he uh, became possessed by the Holy Spirit. See? Um, but I just want to point out just one. There's one testimony of very many uh, of that that these demons. What they want to do, they want to lead us into sin, and they don't have to necessarily be completely possessed, possessive of a person like the demoniacs to get people to do that. You know, we'll find out a little bit later. But uh, in this guy's instance, you know, it's like Elder C. D. Brooks would say: there is hope for you. Alright? Though you be backslidden and Laodicean, there is hope for you. And Jesus is the one who gives us that hope. Amen? Uh, in part one, we learn that there is a distinction between possessed with devils and being sick or ill. Now, with possession, a disease can be manifested as well. Uh, so you can't just, it's not black and white to where you can just draw a line and say, oh, well, yeah, everybody who's sick has a demon. That's just not the case. Um, 
And, and we looked at that. I don't want to get too much more into that. That was in part one. Uh, but, but you know, uh, disease can be manifested as well uh, when someone's possessed. But not always. And the devil can always cause an illness, can he? And then supposedly, quote, you know, kind of heal the person of that disease uh, to make it seem that God is with that person. You know, um, I mean, and I, and I shared this last time. There, there are many, if you think about this, really, if you just use some common sense reasoning, that Bible principle, common sense reasoning, there are many born-again Christians that have severe health issues. And I'll tell you, the Bible is really very clear. Those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, those who are born again, cannot be demon-possessed. They are actually Holy Spirit-possessed. And I'll develop that uh, uh, more and more as we go through this series. Um, one thing I've learned, and I'll share, is that poor health choices uh, uh, do play a role in, in inviting demon possession. So we really need to know about health reform, and we really, friends, need to start practicing it. Uh, to step out there in faith and start practicing. Get educated and make right choices uh, so that we can be better shielded against you know, the enemy of souls. And so um, this, is, this is about where we left off in part one. And I want to begin part two by telling you, or maybe reminding you, uh, just in case you've not known or maybe you've forgotten, that we do have a divine mandate from the Lord in how we ought to relate with these forces of evil. Did you know that? Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, and I'll lay this out for you. I'll remind you of this. Just in case you didn't know, or maybe you've forgotten, Mark 6, verses 12 and 13. Now the Bible says there, and this is Jesus speaking, or actually, let's go, yeah, uh, this, is, this is the Gospel of Mark. I think it's being posted in the room, I hope so. But it says there in verse 12, it says, And they went out and preached that men should repent. Now, how many still believe that that's part of our message? That's part of the gospel. <laughs> Isn't it? Calling people to repentance, in that part of the gospel? And that's what they say. They went out and they preached that men should repent. Verse 13, And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Isn't that an interesting couple of verses there? How many believe in teaching about anointing with oil and healing? Right? So, uh, uh, we believe in the repenting part, right? That's part of the gospel. And we believe in the anointing part. Do we believe in the part that's sandwiched between the two, casting out many devils and demons? Have you ever thought about that? Do we believe all the Word of God, friends? And... Uh, and so that's one of the the reasons uh, that uh, I was prompted and impressed that, that we need to talk about this because we we know that we'll be uh, in the end times here that we will be uh, in it's almost like we're getting down to the the final battle and we're going to get into hand to hand combat you know we've had our air support over the years we we've had the shelling from the the navy but we need you know troops on the ground. And so, as you go on here in Mark, you know, uh, Mark six, um, in this chapter, Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. See, and this is part of his great commission. If you go to Mark sixteen, um, 
and this is what I'm talking about in Mark 16, it's part of the great commission that Jesus gave to us, it says, And these signs shall follow them that believe. Now, it doesn't say the signs will follow the apostles, does it? It says those who believe. And by the way, isn't that supposed to be all of us who are saved? Are we believers? And yet here is Jesus saying, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out demons. I find it interesting that he would mention that first. In my name shall they cast out demons. And then he goes on, They shall speak with new tongues, and there are other signs. But I wanted to emphasize that the last words of Jesus maybe should have a first priority among Christians. I mean, it's something the Bible deals with. Right? If if I were to ask you what's the first miracle of Jesus, what would you say? And and here I I got a, a shout out from the congregation here who said, you know, water into wine, right? But I'll tell you, that's if you're reading the Gospel of John. The Gospel of Mark says the first miracle of Jesus was delivering someone from an evil spirit. John, uh, when he talked about miracles, he was thinking, uh, it appears that he was thinking about something where you supernaturally transform uh, something from one material to another. And, uh, I don't know, maybe his definition was different than Mark. Uh, um, And based on that definition, turning water to wine, that's dealing with, right, and an inanimate thing, not a spiritual battle. So he may not have qualified it that way, but if you want to go by the first supernatural engagement, it was actually where Jesus, when he began preaching, cast the devil out of someone. And if you think about it, when Jesus started his ministry right after baptism, what did he do? He was moved by, or the Greek word actually means cast out, into the desert to do what? To be tempted by the devil. So Jesus dealt with the demon foe first off as well, and it looks like this is the first thing he mentions in Mark as to to the signs that follow his believers. I find that to be quite revealing, don't you? And by the way, one of the signs mentioned was speaking in new tongues. During their previous ministry, the twelve... Uh, had not been given the gift of tongues for, well, it wasn't needed. Jesus is with them. Now there was a need, and the power was bestowed upon them. They were Pentecost, and, 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 and so that was one of the signs. Something else interesting in verse 18, and I find this a, a fantastic promise for us, friends. In verse 18 it says, They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. And, and, and that's just an incredible um, promise to us. It, 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 it's an illustration of experiences that would normally result in injury or death, right? But it's a promise that the, those who are spreading the gospel, those who are doing the work of the Father... Uh, will be protected. They have special protection. And that's according to the Father's will. And, as I said, this should give us confidence that when we do the Father's will, we receive divine protection. Because we, when we do His will, we've given Him permission to be the Lord of our life, friends. 
and he builds a hedge around us. And uh, so, I want to talk about, I want to look at, begin looking at examples, biblical examples of uh, spiritual possession. Now, the Gospels record several instances of demon possession, and I'm not sure if we'll look at all of them, uh, but I encourage you to do your own research. I always do. Check me out. Pastor Brooks would always say, you check me out. Go to your Bible. Um, but it's not just the Gospels. There's also examples in the Old Testament as well, um, as other places in the New Testament. But I want to begin here in Mark, as that is the actual first instance, as I said, that Jesus dealt with it, and when he had some of his church, his disciples, with him. And by the way, why do you suppose that was? Why did he do that with some of the church with him? <laughs> why didn't he do that in... In, in, in secret. Well, he does all these things as a lesson for us, doesn't he? Alright? Among other things. But let's turn to the Gospel of Mark. We'll begin reading chapter 1 at verse 21. That's where we will begin. And, and this is an example. Let's see what we can learn from these things. Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and taught. Now, Again, this is right after Jesus uh, um, begins his preaching ministry. And this is after his ordeal in the wilderness with Satan. And he's just called Peter and James and John and Andrew to follow him. And where does he go? Well, it says here that he went to church on the Sabbath day. So that's where he's at. Verse 22, And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. And by the way, that's repeated in Matthew chapter 7, where it talks about him having this teaching with authority. Jesus taught with authority. You see, friends, the, the scribes would talk about um, this rabbi said this, and that rabbi said that, but instead of dwelling upon what men of past ages had thought and written and appealing to this as authority... Jesus spoke as having authority in Himself directly from our Father in Heaven. And we see it. Jesus would say, I say unto you. He didn't say, Rabbi so-and-so said this. He said, I say unto you. And so people noticed this stark contrast. And so they would say, He taught them as one that had authority. And Jesus didn't only speak with authority. He showed His authority. And what's the evidence of His authority? Let's go to verse 23. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. He had an unclean spirit. In the Greek it's pneuma akarthaton. And it means impure. Uh, either ceremonially or morally. Uh, specifically speaking of uh, uh, demonic. It means to be foul, to be unclean. And in the Gospels, this expression is used synonymously with the Greek word uh, demonian, which indicates a spirit that's superior to men. The point is that it always applies to an evil spirit, a demon or a devil, when you see that, that um, phrase together. Um, so, it says, and there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. 
Sounds like he might have more than one unclean spirit, doesn't it? Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Now, I find it interesting that when Jesus comes into the vicinity of this man that is possessed, that the unclean spirit cried out, don't you? Why do you suppose this unclean spirit did that? Is it normal for demons to be attracted to Christ and to want to speak to Him? Is that normal? Well, see, friends, this occurred at the point where Jesus was speaking of His mission to set free those who were slaves of sin and of Satan. And, and so, in this battle, when you consider that, Jesus comes, He says, I've come to set the captives free. You, do demons want that message to get out? They don't. So they want to interrupt Him. Because here, you know, the audience, they were listening intently to the message that Christ was giving, and Satan designed in this way to divert their attention from the truth that Jesus was giving and finding its way into some of their hearts and minds. So he, he's, he's trying to distract, and that's what he always tries to do, isn't it? He, look at our world today. Our world today has so many distractions out there, and that's what Satan wants. So, said that the demons cried out. This is really interesting too, because the Greek word for cried out is anagrazo. Anagrazo. And it means to scream up aloud. To cry out. It, scream up. When you scream, you're not being, you know, you don't not muffled scream. You're screaming, right? Getting attention. Thayer, in his uh, Bible dictionary, he says... It is a cry from the depth of the throat. Now, I want to compare this uh, to an example in Matthew chapter 8. So keep your finger there in Mark and turn to Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, what I'm going to look at. This screaming out. This screaming out. It says, And when he was come to the other side into the country of the Gergesenes, that's the same as Gadara, there met him the two possessed with devils, coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? So, in Mark we saw that they, they cried out, and here in Matthew it says they cried out, but there's two different but related, two different Greek words used. So we see a variation on how these demons cried out. Now you might say, well, Pastor Joel, you're splitting hairs. Well, maybe not. It goes to a point that I'll make in just a minute about the strength of such demons. But this variation here, in, in Matthew 8, this different word, it's, it's the Greek uh, word. It's actually a primary verb in the Greek. It's krotso, meaning to croak as a raven. Or scream, that is to call aloud, to shriek, exclaim, entreat, to cry. So it's about the same, but it's a little different with the, with, with the note that it's to croak as a raven. So, in this instance, 
they aren't just screaming loudly, but they're doing it like a raven croaks. You can really hear when a raven or a crow croaks. It's rather loud. I mean, we live in the Midwest. We're in farm country. we got crows all the time. And let me tell you, they are very loud. Now, let's think about this for just a minute. Where did these two demoniacs, these two guys, come out of? What did it say? Coming out of the tombs. Isn't that what that said? So they come out of the tombs where the dead are buried, and when they see Jesus, they croak like ravens, right? Ravens aren't songbirds, are they? <laughs> well, they are. And, and where do you usually see ravens depicted? Aren't they usually depicted with like witches and sorcerers and such? And so this is a characteristic you'll find with many who are demon-possessed. So, in these examples, we see degrees or different fruits of manifestations depending upon how much one may be possessed or by how many demons and how those demons respond. And did you notice they said, in both instances, they said, in essence, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? This is actually a, um, this is a challenge. This is a challenge from the demons to, to Jesus, uh, his authority. And what they really meant was, what right have you to interfere with me? This is what they're saying. You see, they believe that they had a right to possess their victim because of the choices those men, I should say, the choices or the indifference that those men had made in their life. And so this, too, gives us, it gives us insight that our choices actually can invite possession if we make choices that are against the will of God. And, again, I'll get more into that a little bit later. Um, but we go back to there. I mean, sometimes you don't know if you're dealing with one demon or if you're dealing with the demoniacs like in Gadara who had legions of demons, meaning that more than one demon can possess a person, right? Like Mary Magdalene, you remember, the Bible says that Christ cast out seven devils. And this reminds me, you know, Jesus tells a parable. I'm not going to go into it in great detail. Uh, maybe in another, uh, as we go on down the road, um, but not today. But Jesus tells a parable about a man who, who he has a devil cast out, and then he cleans his house and sweeps it. Remember that? But he doesn't replace it with anything better, so that the devil roams around in desolate places for a while, and he comes back again, and he finds what? That his former dwelling... He finds that it's been cleaned and swept, but nothing's been replaced. And he brings seven other devils worse than himself, and they all move in together and they have a party in that person's life. Those are my words. Right? So when you start looking at all these examples of demon possession, you begin to see that depending upon the number of demons, whether it's one, all the way up to you know legions, there are different degrees of the fruits of that possession. And as I said before, possession manifests itself in different degrees. We've already seen that some who are possessed can still be physically brought to Christ by others, right? Some are so violent that no one can really get very near them, like they're at Gadara. So let's think about this for a moment. If you have a person with multiple devils, Say if you've got a man, uh, say if you've got a, a man who's got five thousand devils, 
Or, you know, a legion of devils like a Gadara. You see that he can break chains. He's running around naked and dirty and cutting himself with stones and screaming. He's living in a cemetery surrounded by pigs. And say, let's cut that possession number in half. And he only had half as many demons. Well, his behavior or his fruits might have looked a little better to us. Still not good, but maybe better, right? Now let's cut that down to a quarter of that number of demons. Maybe he's got only got a hundred devils. He might have been able to walk up and down the streets without being arrested. Let's say get him down to fifty devils. You might even hire him, not know he's possessed. You see where I'm going with this? This means that people can have varying degrees of demon possession. And there are some people who are possessed and they're able to conduct themselves in a civilized way. But the devil's got his claws in them, and they need deliverance. There is some area in their life, you see, where they they are owned by the enemy. And this is what the Bible teaches. Let me share this with you. It's from the Great Controversy, page 516. That's the Great Controversy, page 516. And 16. Those possessed with devils are usually represented as being in a condition of great suffering, and yet there were exceptions to this rule. And she gives us some exceptions. For the sake of obtaining supernatural power, some welcomed the satanic influence. These, of course, had no conflict with the demons. Of this class were those who possessed the spirit of divination. Simon Magus, Elimus the sorcerer, and the damsel who followed Paul and Silas at Philippi. And I'll get to those in a later study. Um, you know. But remember, there are only two spirits in this world, right? The spirit, pneuma, the Greek word pneuma, of Christ, and the spirit, pneuma, of Antichrist. And we're on one side or on the other, right? And there are varying fruits of the spirit whatever spirit that may be in control or possessing the person. The fruit manifested can be of a beast or a minister of light, depending on the whim of the demon, see. Satan can use righteousness in part to deceive, can he not? He can twist scripture to confuse and lead a person astray. He can appear as an angel of light, right? We talked about last time. They can bend light and change their appearances. So he can play both sides in order to get his agenda through. God, on the other hand, the Bible tells us that God cannot lie. And the fruits of the Holy Spirit will always remain steadfast. And this is why Jesus said, By their fruits ye shall know them when speaking about his followers. Okay? Let's go back to Mark chapter 1. Verse 20, we'll we'll start reading it again. Verse 21. And they went to Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and taught, and they were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one that had authority, and not as the scribes. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone! What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. You know, when I, when I would read this, I'd say, did these demons know who Jesus was? Absolutely. Why did they know 
Jesus. Well, they lived before Lucifer fell, didn't they? These were once holy angels. you realize that? They were once holy angels. They used to worship Jesus. They know who He is. And yet I still find it amazing that there are some people that don't think Christ was God and then became a man. But the devils know and they admit it. I mean, think about that when someone says they don't believe in Jesus. They're worse than the devil for he knows Jesus exists and who He is. I shouldn't say that they're worse. I say they're, they're more uneducated than the devil. In this instance, the demons asked if Jesus had come to destroy them. Where before it was asked if he had come to torment them. And those two, you know, Mark and, and Matthew 8, that I was comparing there about uh, uh, screaming, they cried out. Uh, what did they mean by that question? Have you come to destroy us? Well, Bible commentator Adam Clark, he explains it like this. He says, we may suppose this spirit to have felt and spoken thus. Is this the time of which it hath been predicted, that in it the Messiah should destroy all that power which we have usurped and exercised over the bodies and souls of men? Alas, it is so. I now plainly see who thou art, the Holy One of God, who art come to destroy unholiness, in which we have our residence, and through which we have our reign in the souls of men. I say that this demon evidently anticipated, friends, um, with terror, the great judgment day of God. And so he apparently knew of the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, it says in Matthew 25. And so he was apprehensive that Christ was about to execute divine judgment upon him. Right? Which makes me think, you know, uh, something else I've been been uh, uh, learning is that these, and, and I think I'll share this a little bit later on as well, but demons cannot, for one thing, they can't read our minds, and they are Bible students, but God shields some of His truth from them. They don't know. See? And so you see an evidence of this. I have... They're not mocking Christ. They're saying they were terrified that Jesus had appeared to destroy them. Okay? Let's go on with Mark 1. Verse 25. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace. That literally means to be muzzled. Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. Why did first of all, why did Jesus silence the demon? Mainly because that demon spirit addressed him as the Messiah. Jesus knew that an open claim at that time, the open claim to the Messiahship, uh, would only prejudice a lot of minds against him. Also, the the political situation in Palestine at that time, they produced actually a lot of false messiahs who, you know, came out and they proposed to lead the country, they lead Israel in revolt against Rome. That's what Barabbas was. He was a false Christ. He wanted to, to lead a fight against Rome. But Jesus wanted to avoid being considered a, a political Messiah in that sense. See, This would have 
blinded the people to the the nature of his mission and and it also would have offered all those authorities a, a pretext for taking care of Jesus, silencing his labors, or throwing him in jail, or doing something like that. Now, a further reason why Jesus avoided claiming to be the Messiah was that he desired that people would recognize him as the Messiah through personal experience. You know, by seeing how perfect his life was, how he lived, by listening to his words, and and comparing them to the scriptures by also witnessing all of his works, um, by understanding prophecy, you know, recognizing all of this was the fulfillment in the Old Testament, which is what he said to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, remember? He went back and went through all the prophecies concerning the Messiah. And another reason for him to muzzle the demon, uh, and it's an example to us, is that, uh, and, and it's an example to us what not to do when we're confronted by these powers, and that's to, to get into a conversation with them. You see, friends, they can mesmerize the human mind if given the chance. Like Eve gave Satan the opportunity to do to her in the Garden of Eden. And he did. And then Satan used Eve to tempt Adam to fall. Just real quick, let me share with you. Mind, Character, and Personality, that's the book, Volume 2, page 713. Satan tempted the first Adam in Eden. And Adam reasoned with the enemy, thus giving him the advantage. Satan exercised his power of hypnotism over Adam and Eve, and this power he strove to exercise over Christ. But after the word of Scripture was quoted, there's a key to us, Satan knew that he had no chance of triumphing. So, Jesus here, he's giving an example of what we're not to do. We're not to get into a conversation with these powers. We are to rebuke them from the Word of God. Right? Which is what what, uh, uh, Jesus did. It's very dangerous for humans to converse with these powerful forces of darkness. And, And so, like I said, the only way to do so is with the authority of Christ and with His Word, and there's a right way to do that. And I'll cover that before we end this series. Um, Now, when Jesus cast out the demon, it said that he was torn. What did did the man... Why did the man uh, convulse first? And that's what it means by torn, convulsed. I think it, it really illustrates that the devil doesn't let go easily. There's a convulsion because there's a battle and there's a resistance that's happening. It's a war, isn't it? It's this cosmic conflict. It's the great controversy. And, uh, and so there's this convulsion. You know, when the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt, did the Pharaoh write them all farewell cards and send them down the road and, and wave his hanky and say, have a nice trip? Or did the Pharaoh tighten his grip on them? He made their labor harder, didn't he? He guarded the borders. He refused to let them go. And as a result, of course, his heart was hardened. But but when they finally were starting to leave Egypt, he changed his mind and he chased after them. Right? The whole nation went through a convulsion of deliverance, you could say, before they were born. Um, You know, those who have parents or... You know, you've noticed, you know, people who, you know, are expecting you, the, that there are contraction pains before birth. A woman might 
walk around glowing during pregnancy and say, oh, this is wonderful, but wait until the labor pains begin and that little baby's going to be delivered. Sometimes there's a convulsion before the deliverance, and, and that's what happens often when Christ casts out devils. Never forget, friends, that these evil forces, they love war, they love violence, and they want to destroy mankind. Do not ever doubt that. And they fight God. That's evidence of that. Okay? Mark 1, verse 27. And they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. It says that they were amazed at his authority. You know, when you begin to tell the truth about uh, the spiritual warfare that's going on uh, out there, the devil doesn't want people to take you seriously. Let me ask you, how many of you want the Holy Spirit and believe he's a real person that will move into your hearts? You see, the Holy Spirit can possess you um, if you allow him to. He'll cage your natural inclinations and work with you to overcome all those tendencies to evil, whereas when the devil possesses you, he cages your will. See? And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, there's only one other alternative. You're demon-possessed to some degree, minor though it may appear. There, And you've heard me say before, the Bible's very clear, Jesus is very clear. There's no neutral ground. It's either Christ or it's Antichrist. Well, you know, I'm not ready for God's Spirit and I'm not going to let the devil bother me. I'm in charge of my own life. I have freedom of choice. Haven't you ever heard that? I hear it all the time. Let me tell you, you're kidding yourself. You belong to the devil, you believe that. There are only two powers in this life if you believe the Bible. Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're against me. And right alongside the devil who's against him. And so, friends, I advise you to join Christ. <laughs> There's only one who's powerful enough to deliver you and protect you from the devil, and that's Jesus Christ. Something else we learn from this story, when Jesus cast the devil out of that man, did you notice where he was? It's in the first verse. It said, remember, it said, straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. Well, think about this. What was that possessed man doing there? He must have been a church member. Isn't that right? Or at the very least, he was attending church. Maybe we could say that. But he had to be a church member, really. They didn't let just anybody in the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue. But he's there. He's attending church. He's a member. Maybe he was visiting from another synagogue or whatever. And and, and he's there. Okay? Um, he didn't start crying out and wigging out until Jesus came in and then there was a battle. Do you think the devil comes to church, friend? I'll tell you, the devil does come to church. 
James chapter 2 and verse you know, 19, we, we're very familiar with this. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well, the devils also believe and tremble. And even those who seem very religious and pious can be possessed of demons, such as you know, some of the leaders in Israel during the time of Christ. This, uh, this is from, let me share it with you, it's from a Review and Herald article, April 14, 1896. She says, Legions of evil angels controlled the priests and rulers. What was that? Legions of evil angels controlled the priests and rulers and gave voice to the suggestions of Satan in persuading and tempting the people by falsehoods and bribes to reject the Son of God and to choose a robber and murderer in his stead. This is when they were choosing between Jesus and Barabbas. They appealed to the very worst passions of the unregenerate heart and stirred up the worst elements of human nature by the most unjust accusations and representations. You, and by the way, you learn some of the characteristics and, and the, the fruits of this, these devils, which I'll present later on, a list of them. Um, she says, What a scene was this for God to look upon, for seraphim and cherubim to behold, the only begotten Son of God, the Majesty of Heaven, the King of Glory, was mocked, insulted, taunted, rejected, and crucified. Friends, there's five things there that are actual character traits of demons. They mock, they insult, they taunt, they reject truth, they'll kill you. And this is what they did to Jesus. He said, this happened to by those who he came to save, who had given themselves to the control of Satan. What had happened? They had given themselves to the control of Satan. You know, in all your studies and everything, you read the gospel, have you ever noticed that if there is anything good or holy, the devil hates that? The devil hates when we sing praises to God. And the devil hates the Sabbath day because it's, well, it's a day commemorated for the Lord, isn't it? And that's why he chose a different day as his Sabbath. You know, Sunday is his day, is his mark. And have you ever noticed that the devil will always try to schedule his attacks just before church? Because he doesn't want you to go to worship God in the right spirit. And you'd be surprised how many people come to church, well, they're coming out of a sense of obligation that, that may have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit guiding them. And, and many have just been raised with a sense of obligation that they're supposed to be there. But they're in such a bad spirit, they've been living in sin through the week, and yet they come. They'll come to church. They're not coming because they're seeking deliverance from that, you know, darling, delicious sin. They're coming because, well, I ought to be there. And and have you, has, maybe this has happened to you. The devil especially loves to bring in some kind of strife, uh, a contention, Maybe between husband and wife, or maybe between mom and dad, or between the kids, before church on Sabbath. I mean, that's happened to us before. Just anything that will destroy the atmosphere, you know, and the, the sweet blessing, the spirit. And I'll tell you, that's why the, the preparation day really is so important. Because one of the most important things that we can do on preparation day is, what is it for? It's to prepare for the Sabbath, isn't it? And one of the most important things is to pray that God will set a hedge of good angels about us and protect us from those attacks. And God will do that. 
And so you can enter into the Sabbath with peace and, and protection. And the Lord will shield you against those attacks. And you ought to be praying for that, friends. It's, it's not just making sure you've got your casserole ready for potluck. You know, what good, what good is it if you've got your casserole ready but your heart's not prepared, right? And so one of the best things that you can do in preparation for the Sabbath is just to pray. Lord, I want you to shield my family. We want to receive the blessing you promised in this day. Hold back the devil and his minions that, that would like to come in and rob us of our blessing by bringing in strife or causing some kind of problem. You know, maybe you know uh, the pipes break or you know uh, something falls apart or whatever. Fill our hearts with peace and may we gain the spiritual rest you, you have for us on the Sabbath. Just a simple prayer. You know, the, the devil loves to disrupt our lives like that, especially on the Sabbath. And you're preparing to go to church to get a blessing, aren't you? Right? That's why we're here today, for one of the reasons, right? I mean, how many of you know what I'm talking about? I can't be alone. You know, sometimes I'm studying something very important. Or I'm praying and I'll get disrupted by maybe a, uh, maybe a phone call. And, it, and it's the most frivolous thing. And I get off the phone, and this thought pops into my head like, that was from the devil. And, and, and he might have used a perfectly nice person that had no idea that they're calling me to ask whatever it was that just brought in a distraction at a crucial moment. And it's like when the, the pastor's uh, making an altar call, and the Holy Spirit's wrestling with people, and the devil's wrestling with those people, and, and they're praying about what to do, and the pastor's getting ready to give a scripture, and it's just the scripture that that person needs. And right at that moment, someone will pinch a baby. A demon, usually. I believe that. And it'll scream, and everybody will look. I mean, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. And I know you're thinking, you know, Pastor Joel, I had no idea you were so superstitious, you know. <laughs> I think you've, you people have known me long enough to know that I don't go around looking for boogeymen everywhere. But I know they're there. I'm talking about, you know, devils and evil spirits. I know there's a war going on. I really don't even like preaching a, a series like this because I, I almost feel like I'm directing your attention towards the negative. But Jesus speaks of this power. He speaks of them. And you need to know it's real. And how we're to deal with them as Christians. So, what we've been talking about, it was the first miracle of Jesus there in, in Mark 1 to, to cast out a uh, to cast out a devil. Now I want to read to you the commentary of this experience that we just read about in Mark. And it's from the, the book Selected Messages, Volume 2, between pages 177 to 179. And the reason I want to do that is because there are incredible lessons for us to learn about demon possession that will protect us if we heed these lessons. And so, I want to read this to you. It may fill in some of the gaps. It says, There was a man in the synagogue who was possessed of the spirit of Satan. He broke in upon the discourse of Jesus with a piercing shriek that chilled the blood of the hearers with a nameless terror. Okay, Like I said, that Greek word means to croak, like as from a raven. Okay? Let us alone, he cried. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? 
I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Devils even believed and trembled, but the Israel of God had closed their eyes and ears to divine evidences and knew not the time of their visitation. Satan's object in leading his wretched victim to the synagogue was to distract the attention of the people from Jesus to the paroxysms of the poor sufferer and prevent the words of truth from reaching the hearts of the people. But the darkened understanding of the man comprehended that the teachings of Jesus were from heaven. The power of divinity aroused the terror of the demon which controlled his mind and a conflict ensued between it and his remnant of reason. He still had some reason left in his mind. He still had freedom to choose. It was just caged, see? As the victim realized that the healer was near to release him, his heart was aroused to long for freedom from Satan's power. The demon resisted this power and held control over the poor wretch who was wrestling against him. The sufferer tried to appeal to Jesus for help, but when he opened his lips, the demon put words in his mouth so that he shrieked out in an agony of fear, Let us alone! What have we to do with thee, Jesus of Nazareth? The darkened reason of the poor man partially comprehended that he was in the presence of one who could free him from the bondage that had so long enslaved him. But when he sought to come within reach of that mighty hand, another's will held him back. Another's words found utterance through him. Now, you want to know how how do we give ourselves up to demon possession? Listen to this example. She says, By his own sinful course, this man had placed himself on the enemy's ground. And Satan had taken possession of all his faculties, so that when the gloom of his understanding was pierced by feeble rays of light from the Savior's presence, the conflict between his desire for freedom and the devil's power threw him into terrible contortions and drew from him unearthly cries. The demon exerted all his hellish power to retain the control of his victim. To lose ground here would be to give Jesus a victory. He who had in his own person conquered the prince of the power of darkness in the wilderness of temptation was now again brought face to face with his enemy. It seemed that the tortured man must lose his life in the terrible struggle with the demon that had been the ruin of his manhood. Only one power could break this cruel tyranny. Jesus spoke with a voice of authority and set the captive free. The demoniac spirit made a last effort to rend the life from his victim before he was forced to depart. Then the man who had been possessed stood before the wandering people, happy in the freedom of self-possession. In the synagogue, on the Sabbath day, before the assembled congregation, the prince of darkness was again met and conquered. And even the demon had testified to the divine power of the Savior, crying, Thou Jesus of Nazareth, art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. The man whose reason was thus suddenly restored, praised God for his deliverance. 
the eye that had so lately glared with the, and that's another thing one of the characteristics it changes your you know uh, a person's features especially the eyes it's very interesting but she says the eye that had so lately glared with the fire of insanity now beamed with intelligence and overflowed with grateful tears the people were dumb with amazement as soon as they recovered speech they marveled one with another saying what a word is this for with authority and power he commandeth the unclean spirits and they come out it was not according to the will of god that this man should be visited with so terrible an affliction as to be delivered wholly into the hands of satan the secret source of his calamity pay attention to this friends the secret source of his calamity which had made him a fearful spectacle to his friends and a burden to himself was in his own life. The pleasures of sin had fascinated him. The path of dissipation had looked bright and tempting. He had thought to make life a grand carnival. He did not dream of becoming a disgust and terror to the world and the reproach of his family. He thought his time could be spent in innocent folly, but once on the downward path, his feet rapidly descended till he had broken the laws of health. You catch that? He had broken the laws of health and morality. In temperance and frivolity, chained his senses the fine qualities of his mind were perverted and Satan stepped in and took absolute control of him. One example. One example. And uh, we'll continue looking at some more examples in part three when we get together. Um, But uh, a lot of lessons here for us when we talk about spiritual possession, especially in this part of it, we're talking about demon you know, devil possession, unclean spirits, those kinds of things. Um, you know, our our choices are there are never, friends. There are never little choices. Every choice we make plays a part in in this warfare. And so, I want to leave you with that. Uh, let's have a word of prayer, and um, um, let's have a word of prayer together. And uh, uh, let's see what time is it. And uh, we'll have to close up for today. There's something happening today that we'll have to get get going on. But uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, we do again thank you so very, very much for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you so much for your Holy Bible, your Holy Word that you protected through the ages so that we may learn, learn about you, learn about Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, learn righteous principles, learn how to, to protect ourselves uh, in tangible ways uh, against the enemy of souls with the, the complete aid of the Holy Spirit and angels that you send the remarkable work that they do on our behalf. Lord, we pray that you will bless them for what they do. Uh, we thank you so much that uh, you've uh, promised that when we do thy will we have complete protection from heaven, even from poisonous snakes and uh, uh, other things. Lord, help us in our walk, not only just today, in the coming days ahead. Uh, and, and please, Lord, forgive us our sins. We repent of them. Give us the strength uh, to make the choices to overcome. 
And may we be found worthy when Jesus returns. We humbly ask this favor in His blessed name, for He is so worthy. Worthy to be praised. Amen.